walk through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Last week, Pastor Shaq walked us through the first chapter, Exodus 1. And as we walked through Exodus 1, we were paying particular attention to the way that the, a new political ruler rose to power in Egypt, a new pharaoh. And the author of Exodus is clear to tell us that this new pharaoh kind of crafts this narrative about the Israelites that are in Egypt. This narrative that indicates that the Israelites, without ev- any evidence, without anything to support it, that somehow these Israelites pose a threat to the security and stability of the country, and therefore, they need to be impressed, and they need to be enslaved. And then as part of ensuring the long-term stability of the country, he then begins to enact a genocide by trying to enlist two of the Israelite midwives, Shifra and Pua, into murdering every Israelite baby boy that is born. And this week, we're going to be picking up in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be seeing Pharaoh as he doubles down on his plan to try to eliminate the Israelites. We're going to see Two more women rise up to resist and thwart Pharaoh's genocidal plans. And we're going to have an honest conversation about what that might mean for us today here in this place. So I'm going to take a moment and pray, and then we're going to read Exodus chapter 2. So Father, thank you that we can be gathered together this morning, that we can lift our voices to you and sing about your goodness. Father, we believe that you are faithful that you're full of grace and mercy, that you're not far off and distant, but that you're near to us and involved in our lives, that you care about our hearts and our bodies, that you care about our communities. So Father, would you right now teach us to be your people, to be sisters and brothers, a family here in the north side and across the city that's seeking after you and your ways and your kingdom. Father, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 11j. This is the first slide. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of water. Now, For our conversation this morning, there's a few things just about these 11 verses that I think we need to pay attention to before we start trying to understand what this means for us today. The first thing is this. The author of Exodus 
goes to lengths in verse 1 to point out that Moses is born to Levite parents. In verse 1, the author of Exodus says, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. It's seemingly a really small detail, and yet the author of Exodus is pointing it out twice to signal to us a role that Moses is destined to play for the Israelite people. The Levites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a tribe set apart to play the role of priests. Priests are people who represent God to God's people and then offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people so that those people's sins can be forgiven and they can walk in right relationship with God. A priest is an intermediary between God and people. And the author of Exodus wants us to know from the very beginning that Moses is born to be a priest, that the role he's going to play in Israel is that of a priest, that he is going to represent God to the Israelites, and he's going to act in ways that will help the Israelites walk in right relationship with God. So that's the first thing that we need to know about this passage. The second thing, we're told in verses 2 and 3, when, we, when she saw that he was a fine child. This is Moses' mother. We'll learn in a later chapter in Exodus that her name is Jochebed. So when Jochebed saw that he, Moses, was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Why did she hide him for three months? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to last week, Exodus chapter 1, right? We encounter in Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, this moment where Pharaoh tells Shiphrah and Pruah, two Israelite midwives, that they are to murder every Israelite baby boy that is born. Pharaoh tells them during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. This is Pharaoh trying to enact the beginning of a genocide against the Israelite people. And he's trying to conscript these two women, these Israelite midwives, into his unjust and evil plan. And we're told in Exodus 1 that Shifra and Pua ultimately outsmart and thwart Pharaoh. But Pharaoh doesn't stop. The very last verse of Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, we read Pharaoh, we overhear Pharaoh as he gives this edict to all of his people. This is the next slide, Jay. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. When Jochebed gives birth to Moses, it seems like people are following Pharaoh's edict, that all of Pharaoh's followers are seemingly going along with his plan to take every Israelite baby boy and throw them into the Nile. If they weren't, there's absolutely no reason for Jochebed to feel compelled to try and hide her son. It's a picture of the Egyptian people falling prey to this narrative of fear that Pharaoh has created and crafted to describe the Israelites. A narrative of fear that Pharaoh is using to manipulate his own followers into committing evil and unjust acts. People literally believing that for the security and stability of the country, that it's good for them to take children 
and throw them into a river. Pharaoh's followers are all too willing to believe the narrative that he speaks to them and to go along with their evil, his evil and unjust plan. And before we think that this is just an ancient problem, before we think that this is something that just happened thousands of years ago, I think we need to take a moment and just contend with the reality that this is happening in our country and our communities today. That in our country and in our communities today, there are political parties and there are media outlets that are crafting a narrative of fear around particular groups of people. And we're being told that those particular groups of people, they need to be controlled. They need to be contained. They need to be oppressed. Because by doing that, we are ensuring the stability and security of our country. That based on a series of alternative facts, a narrative is being crafted. And we're discovering that there are people all too willing to go along with it. That even today, people will be manipulated by these narratives of fear. And so as people trying to follow after Jesus today, we need to be discerning in the way that we participate in our political system and the media and news that we consume. Are we being told that there are entire groups of people that simply on the basis of who they are, what they look like, or where they're from, that they're dangerous, that we should fear them, that their simple presence in our community or in our country puts at risk all of our safety and security? And as followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to reject those narratives of fear. We have to push back against these attempts to be manipulated into denying and denigrating and destroying the image of God in other people. Because the only way that we can be manipulated into going along with these unjust kinds of plans and policies is if we fall prey to fear and forget that every one of our neighbors, no matter what, is made in the image of God. And every one of our neighbors, because they are made in the image of God, is worthy of dignity and value. Because of this, in Exodus 2, Jochebed gives birth to a baby boy and spends the first three months of that baby's life doing everything that she can as a mother to protect and preserve his life. But there's another thing to notice in this story. That once a false narrative is propagated, once it's embraced, it can still be uprooted and transformed. And because of that, there's hope for Jochebed and Moses and us. We're told that Moses, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the Nile to bathe. And it seems that Jochebed is aware of this. The details of this story, I don't know the way that you may have been taught this story throughout your life if you've heard it before, but the way that it was always presented to me was as though Moses was just thrown into a basket and like thrown into the Nile. But the actual language of this story is that like Jochebed knows what she's doing. She takes a basket and coats it with tar and pitch so that it's waterproof and floats. She takes it to a particular location and sets it among the reeds. 
even in this, she is doing everything that she can to preserve her child's life. And it seems like she almost sets it in a place where she already knows Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe. In verse 5, the author of Exodus tells us, she, Pharaoh's daughter, saw the basket. Throughout my entire life, I've like read this passage or been taught this passage and thought like this was a lucky chance. It seems like Jochebed did this on purpose. And Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds where it was carefully placed and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. We have to recognize that the arrival of Pharaoh's daughter in this story should portend disaster for Moses, right? She's the daughter of the man who has created a false narrative, is trying to manipulate all of his followers into a genocide against the Israelite people. Her arrival in the story should signal disaster for Moses. I mean, Dominique Dubois-Gilliard in his book, Subversive Witness, he writes this. He says, Pharaoh's daughter had been discipled by her father to see the Israelites as subhuman and disposable. Their only value lay in their free labor. She had been trained to see Israelites as her enemies and was warned that if they were not contained, ruthlessly overseen, and hegemonically governed, all the privileges and comforts she had become accustomed to would end. Sounds like ways that people in our own country, in our own communities, are being manipulated to believe about people. That the presence of other people quite literally challenge and undermine our own privileges and comforts. And yet, in Pharaoh's daughter, we see that it's her personal interaction with the baby that leads her to disobey her father's edict. It's through direct interaction that she, she decides to preserve Moses' life. The author of Exodus tells us that Pharaoh's daughter felt sorry for him. That word sorry is the Hebrew word hamel. It means to have compassion on. And it's this compassion that leads Pharaoh's daughter to make the decision in defiance of her father's edict to preserve Moses' life. Now, I want to take a moment and just sit right here. Because I think in Pharaoh's daughter, we find the roots of a conversation that's worth having as a family this morning. The late civil rights leader and United States Congressman John Lewis used to say that people need to be willing to get into good trouble. Because good trouble challenges and upends unjust laws, systems, structures, and institutions. And as in the case of Pharaoh's daughter, we see that people willing to get into good trouble can actually lead to the transformation of an oppressor's heart. We're just two chapters into Exodus, and so far, four women have engaged in a form of nonviolent civil disobedience. And they did it because they knew the heart of God. They knew his character. They knew his ways. They knew that God values life, that all life is made in God's image, and therefore every person is worthy of being valued and conferred dignity. And because they knew this, they were willing to challenge the most powerful leader in their country. They were willing to challenge and push back against his unjust laws. And their nonviolent civil disobedience 
ends up upending the entire system of forced labor and slavery in Egypt, all by protecting and preserving Moses' life. And I think to talk about this, we need to wade into territory that at least for me feels a little bit dangerous. We have to talk about the way that we understand another passage that's found in the New Testament in the book of Romans. Because in the book of Romans chapter 13, we find a chapter and some verses that at least for me have only ever been presented to me as literal that you just read the sentences that are on the sheet of paper in front of you and you just accept them exactly as they are without any context whatsoever, without asking any questions about them whatsoever, and you just move forward believing them. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 read this way. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. If we choose to interpret these passages literally, then we cannot see Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, and Pharaoh's daughters as heroes. We read Exodus 1 and 2 and we see their actions and we understand them to be heroic. But if all of Scripture is consistent and none of it contradicts itself, how can we read Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 and come to any conclusion other than the fact that Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, and Pharaoh's daughter were wildly disobedient because they just should have submitted to the governing authorities that had been placed above them. And that by resisting those governing authorities, according to Paul, they would have been bringing judgment on themselves. But if we're supposed to read Exodus 1 and 2 and understand that these four women truly are the heroes that the text leads us to understand and recognize that they are, what are we supposed to do with Romans 13? How are we supposed to make sense of that as people who are trying to follow after Jesus in our families and workplaces and communities today? It's worth noting that in Romans, Paul is writing to a group of women and men who are trying to follow Jesus in the ancient city of Rome, a city that biblical historians will point out was more heavily policed than any modern American city that there were more law enforcement officers in ancient Rome per capita than in any modern American city. And these officers of the law in Rome are actively oppressing the Christians. They're harassing them, threatening their lives. They're wrongly and unjustly imprisoning them and occasionally killing them. How does Paul write a letter to a group of people following after Jesus who are actively being oppressed, harassed, threatened, imprisoned, and killed, and with a straight face tell them, just obey. These are God's people for you. God has appointed them over you. 
You're just supposed to submit and follow. Especially when just a few chapters earlier in Romans 9, Paul points to Exodus. And these four women and other characters throughout the book of Exodus, and he holds them up as an example of the ways that God will use people to challenge evil and unjust rulers. In Romans 9, Paul points back to the story that we're in right now. And he says this is one of the ways that God will do what he says he'll do, that he will remove and judge wicked kings and rulers. So if Paul believes that God will judge and remove wicked political rulers, if Paul believes that God will use women and men who follow after him to resist and even sometimes overthrow these wicked political leaders, he can't possibly be telling the Romans or us that we are to blindly submit to unjust political leaders who enact laws and practices or who build systems and structures that are antithetical to the gospel and deny the dignity of our neighbors. Instead, Paul seems to be indicating in Romans 13 that Christians need to be willing to count the cost prior to resisting political leaders or governing authorities. That politicians and officers of the state, they wield government-sanctioned power, the power of the sword. And because of that, there can be consequences. As all of our forebears in the civil rights movement can testify, there can be consequences to our just and nonviolent civil disobedience. Church, we need to be a people who practice discernment. We need to be a people who recognize that we cannot blindly pledge allegiance to political parties or leaders without following, without questioning. Everything we do, everything we are, the ways we live in love are all to be lensed through the future and coming kingdom of God. And where we encounter policies, practices, laws, or leaders who stand against the way of the gospel, who stand against the way of the kingdom, who insist on denying and denigrating and destroying the image of God in our neighbors, we should resist. And we should call out and we should name and we should be willing to tear down because as the late civil rights leader, John Lewis, said in his own words, when you see something that is not right, not just, not fair, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something. Our children and their children will ask us, what did you do? What did you say? For some, this may be hard. But we have a mission and a mandate to be on the right side of history, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. John Lewis spoke these words in what I believe his role as a pastor, right? A trained theologian applying what he understood about the gospel to our country today. The problem, though, for many people is that we never come into relational contact with people who are experiencing oppression. We don't come into contact with people who are vulnerable or marginalized. Pharaoh's daughter being a prime example. She has grown up in literally the most privileged place in all of Egypt, in the palace as Pharaoh's daughter. 
And it wasn't until she came into physical proximity of a vulnerable Israelite baby boy, a baby that her father had taught her to hate and ordered her to kill, that something broke in her heart. In Pharaoh's daughter, we see that proximity leads to compassion. The compassion leads to conviction, and conviction leads to the pursuit of justice on behalf of those who lack it. Church, silence in the face of injustice is not godliness. Nonviolent civil disobedience that resists and challenges Pharaoh's unjust law and protects Moses' life it's nonviolent civil disobedience that achieves it. It's also what achieves this moment for Pharaoh's daughter, where the heart of an oppressor can be transformed. The gospel, lest we forget, is good news for the oppressed and the oppressor, because the gospel sets both free. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> but in light of this, I think there's one overarching thing that we need to take from this passage. Because in the midst of all of what we've just been talking about, there's still the recognition that no matter how much we may follow after Jesus and pursue justice on behalf of those who lack it. There is still injustice in our land. There is still injustice in our communities. It feels like a hopeless battle. It feels like every power and principality and authority present in this world is all set against this reality and picture of the kingdom of God coming to bear, to be experienced and manifested in our actual communities. So many of us experience that on a daily basis, the ways in which we see injustice, the ways in which we experience it directly. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that even though we are supposed to be disposed towards getting into good trouble, we recognize that there's still injustice in the land. What does this passage have to share with us today? What does it speak to us today? And I would contend that this passage points us towards an ultimate hope that we all desperately need. The story of Moses' birth points to something bigger and something beyond it. The seemingly innocuous detail in verse one about Moses being a Levite, it's a signal in the noise because it foreshadows the day that a truer and better priest who is king over all will come to liberate us spiritually and physically once and for all. That just as Moses was born to a vulnerable woman inside a kingdom led by a man desperate to hold on to power and position, a woman who gives birth in the midst of a genocide, a woman who places her child into a basket and who decides to hide her child in the hopes of saving his life, so Jesus was born to a vulnerable woman inside a region led by a man desperate to hold on to his power and position, a woman who gives birth in the midst of a genocide, a woman who also places her child into a 
manger and a woman who decides to hide her child by fleeing the country in the hopes of saving his life. And Jesus, this truer and better priest, fulfills the priestly role for God's people in ways that Moses never could. Because it's in Jesus that our sins are forgiven once and for all. It's in Jesus that the kingdom of God is inaugurated. And it's in Jesus that we experience full and true liberation spiritually and physically. Not only do we walk in right relationship with God in this kingdom, but it's also a kingdom This kingdom that Jesus has come to embody and inaugurate that is marked by justice and wholeness and security and peace and prosperity. A kingdom where every tribe and tongue, every ethnicity and nationality is invited to the banquet and given a seat of honor at the table. A kingdom where every person is created equal and accepted, embraced and celebrated, valued and dignified, safe and free. Free from every form of enslavement and every kind of oppression free to live as the daughters and sons of God that each and every one of us were created to be. And isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what our hearts desire? The realization of the hope we all hold on to is found in the person of Jesus. And it's just too good. It's too good a story that thousands of years ago, the God who made us and formed us in his own image, the God who breathed life into us, who sustained us, who started the work of liberating us and setting us free and making us his people would one day send his own son as the truer and better priest for us to win us back to himself, to quiet us with his love, to rejoice over us with singing, to begin the work of setting right everything that sin is disrupted and disfigured and distorted, to make everyone and everything brand new again. It's too good. And it's in this that the work of redemption and restoration becomes our mission in our families and workplaces and neighborhood. Because in Jesus, we hold on to this ultimate hope. We know where the story is headed. We know who wins in the end. We know how it finishes. And because of this, we can identify, name, and renounce unjust systems and structures in our world today. Because of this, We can name the sin in our own lives and renounce it and turn our hearts to Jesus in new ways. We can count the cost and get into good trouble even when the political leaders and cultural systems are set against the work of justice. And we can do all of it without losing hope because our hope isn't based on circumstances or situations. It's based on a person who lived, who died, who rose from the dead. Our hope is founded in Jesus, and the story of Moses here in Exodus 2 points us to Jesus, our truer and better priest, our rescuer and redeemer. In the brokenness of this world, we can faithfully pursue Jesus. Because as we follow after Jesus, we know that the prophecies of the Old Testament will one day 
not only become true, but fully realized. One day, a city will come down from heaven where God's people will be marked by righteousness and justice, where every person will be placed back into right relationship with God, themselves, one another, and creation, where old women and old men will walk with cane in hand and children will play safely in the city streets, where our weapons of war will be turned into agricultural instruments used for the common good. One day, the kingdom of God that is now in part realized will be fully realized. And in that, we hope. So I wanna leave you with two questions. Two things to process this week. One, where might you feel led to cause good trouble? I think it's a question that every Christian should ask themselves and not just once. It's also a question that at least in my upbringing, Christians have been afraid to ask themselves. Let's be a people of courage, unafraid to ask this question. And then, where do we need to be reminded of this ultimate hope? Where are we struggling to have hope? And how can we be reminded of it in Jesus? So let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you for this moment, this opportunity. Father, I recognize that some of what was shared this morning, for some of us, it's going to be different than maybe what we have thought before, what we've worked through and processed before. And Father, I pray that we might just receive it with soft hearts that we'd bring it to you, that we'd really ask you to teach us, to show us what you want for us, where you're leading us, how you're guiding us. Father, we trust in your spirit to reveal your truth to us and to lead us forward to follow you as your daughters and sons. So Father, we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as our last act of worship this week and every week, we're going to receive communion together. Reverend Eleanor Williams is going to lead us in communion. So Eleanor, would you...